podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. Names like Doohan, Gardner and Rossi have a special place in the history of motorcycle racing and all of them owe a great deal to an unsung Aussie, Jeremy Burgess, a racer turned chief mechanic who's behind more than a dozen world championship wins. The proof? Just listen to his tally of titles that is unlikely to ever be beaten. Mick Doohan, five world titles. Wayne Gardner kind of put Aussie riders back on the the modern day radar, I guess you could say, with that memorable 500cc world championship win in 87. And of course, Valentino Rossi's MotoGP record is phenomenal. Seven Premier Class titles. You have been part of all of them. And you worked with Freddie Spencer during a title winning year there as well. More than a dozen world championships that you've been a part of. What is the actual official total for Jeremy Burgess of world titles? <laughs> uh, well, well, I always said it's not how many that you've got, it's the next one you've got to get. But uh, looking back on it now, there was the 14, um, which, you know, five with Mick, seven with Valentino, uh, one with Wayne, and uh, sort of assisted in Freddie's um, 500 world title in 85. You underrate yourself, you did more than assist. You were very much a part of that. We'll talk about it in a moment. Where did the love of bikes come from, from an early age, obviously? Well, I grew up pretty much where we are right now, and there was uh, it was small dairy farm properties then, and some of my friends had bikes, and then when I started work, I uh, couldn't really afford to run a car, so the bike was the, the option, and then from that point, you, you tend to meet like-minded people, and then on one particular day somebody said you should come out to the racetrack and have a gallop around and the rest is history so to speak. What was the bike that you first rode in in that set of circumstances? The first bike I had was a T500 Suzuki 1969 model uh, first road bike I had Uh, I had bikes from mucking around in the paddock Uh, and then uh, my first race bike was a 750 Kawasaki H2 in 1972. Am I right in saying though that you were tinkering from quite a young age I mean As you and I talk here, we're in uh, just outside of of Adelaide in in South Australia, not far from the vineyard. So there's obviously place and and, and room to do that stuff. But you were... Were you you driving a car, I think, at quite a young age, weren't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, for sure, I was driving at uh, eight uh, tractors and and what have you and and, uh, had my first car at 12, which... uh, cost me uh, £12.10. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it and wh- what became of that car? It was a little Ford Anglia and uh, we we ended up cutting it up and uh, just driving around the paddock in a chassis, sort of uh, Peter Brock style. <laughs> uh, and we did a lot of that. I mean, the, the vineyards are here now, but in the old days, when I was a boy, they were all dairy farms. How did the, the, the racing bug really kick in? Yeah, I went to a race with a friend once at Mount Gambier and, and uh, he was racing and uh, I sort of got excited by it and I'd been going out doing these sort of Saturday afternoon track days at Adelaide International, which was a fairly new circuit in those days, mm-hmm. and uh, I was going faster than some of the guys who were doing quite well in the C grades and, and what have you, so I, I entered a race and uh, the first race I contested was the Advertiser 3-hour race 
and I finished third in the unlimited class. Phenomenal. <laughs> and you developed, even back then, quite a reputation for being meticulous with your with your bike prep. Is that something that you enjoyed and was it every aspect that you worked on on the bike? I, I think... I think uh, what you saw on the outside probably wasn't that flash, but <laughs> the things that actually did work uh, um, were maintained well and bikes were reliable. Uh, and, and I got an enormous enjoyment out of uh, tinkering with the bike in the shed when other blokes were running off with their girlfriends and doing things. I was quite happy to be in the, in the shed at night doing things. In early 1980, you head to Europe to take in some Grand Prix racing. How did that trip come about? And was it purely just a, a spectating mission or, or had you already kind of had the aspiration of, of doing something abroad? Uh, it probably goes back a bit further than that. A, a friend of mine who I used to travel a lot with, Carl Hammersley, was killed uh, here in South Australia on the road. And he was... Um, the guy really sort of pushing me to, you know, make up the double to travel interstate and do everything. So I probably did a few less races in the end of 78 and 79. And I'd probably say I, I wasn't really enjoying it that much, in, in a sense. Um, it, it, I needed something to sort of spark me up. And um, I'd taken up water skiing and um, sort of met up with a, a girl who was keen on water skiing. So parents had a shack on the river so you know everything had sort of a different focus I even did a lot of uh, scuba diving in those years so I can look back and say I really wasn't um, totally fixed on motorcycle racing but certainly still very interested in it Mm. and uh, I I did uh, in 1980 pretty much what uh, every young Australian does and uh, set about that trip to, to Europe or to the mother country as most of us went to um, my father wisely said to me to sell my bikes because he said they'll be another year older when you get back and mm-hmm. more difficult to sell. And uh, I think, you know, when I got to to the UK and went to some of the races there, you realise very quickly that uh, um, the level is so much different and as a 27-year-old it wasn't really going to, to happen. And I was lucky enough to get offered a job at... Uh, Suzuki GB as a mechanic for Randy Mamola. Was it a little bit deflating in that sense because you, even though you may have reached a bit of a crossroads with it, young race is obviously doing well. You're probably at a, a little bit of an older stage for, you know, nowadays at least anyway. And money, I mean, money's so pivotal to it as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But I think if, if anything, the thing I didn't have was any sort of mentoring. Hmm. You know, if I'd had somebody... Uh, um, in your corner. In my corner, who had um, been a racer himself, who, who, you know, wanted to assist or just help, hmm. uh, it, could have made, it could have made a difference. Uh, I'm not saying it would have made me any better, but I might have lasted a bit longer and uh, it certainly would have made, wouldn't have made me any worse. You stayed with a mate during your time there in the UK and did he help you with the introduction to Suzuki and tell us how that all came about? Yeah, very much so. I, I left here in... Uh, February of 1980 with Greg Pretty. Greg was going to Europe with his 750 and he'd been Australian champion in 79 and uh, I just said well I'll come on the same flight. There was no uh, real connection with me and Greg from that point on. I sort of gave him a bit of assistance looking for a van in the UK Uh, but I was um, as much out of the depth there as he was you know in in being in a different country doing things where the prices were double what we were used to yeah. but we're staying with mick smith who had been um jeffrey sales mechanic here in australia 
and uh, he had been Steve Parrish's um, mechanic uh, in Europe the previous year, but he was now about to start embark on a, a career working with Graham Crosby at Suzuki, who was the other rider with Randy. So uh, one day Mick sort of said to me, we're looking for a mechanic to work for Randy. And I said, oh, we'll put my name down with the other 500 you've got. <laughs> it was really a case of being the right place at the right time because Rex White, who was the manager of Team Suzuki GB in those days, called me in on a Saturday. And uh, I knew Mick, of course. I knew Randy from meeting him in New Zealand in 1976. Mm. And I knew George Vikmanovich, who had been Warren Willing's mechanic in Australia in 78. Mm. And George was an American. So, um, and I knew Cross because I'd raced with Cross. So I knew a lot of the people in the team. And uh, I think the fact that my RG Suzuki had run pretty well when they were a very fragile sort of motorcycle probably tipped the scales and got me over the line. You mentioned some great names there. I mean, Steve Parrish a minute ago. I mean, he's a teammate and great friend to the late Barry Sheen. Randy Mamola, obviously. Kiwi racer, Graham Crosby. I mean, all great characters. And and, um, what was it like working in those circles with those guys? (laughs) Yeah, looking back, it it was fantastic, of course. And Cros and I spend a lot of time together now. I was in New Zealand only a couple of weeks ago with him. Uh, But uh, at the time, it was... um, something that was very new to me, uh, Grand Prix racing and uh, working with um, factory machinery was just sort of every boy's dream. dream. Uh, yeah. I think the most important thing I was worried about was not messing it up. To, to be sort of handed an opportunity like that uh, was uh, pretty much unheard of, I think. Yeah. I, um, Working in a factory team, nobody in any of the other teams knew who I was, and there I am spannering Randy's bikes in 1980, 81 and 82. And he won in, in Belgium. That's the first podium, I think, in a career for you that's, I mean, something like 280 podiums that you contributed to or were a part of during a, a phenomenal career. What did that first podium with him, what <laughs> memories have you got of it? Oh, look, I can remember very much the... Uh, the party that night <laughs> in Zolder. The bike guys are good at that, aren't they? Yeah, look, it was a, a, um, a fantastic thing. We'd been close on a number of occasions and, uh, you know, what amazed me so much was the the fact that we'd go testing and break lap records. So you knew that Randy was a very, very good rider mm. uh, and uh, there was this sort of expectation that you'd run better lap times everywhere than the Grand Prix of the previous year and uh, we got we got to Zolder, which I think uh, was uh, a last minute choice for venue because normally it was Spa, mm-hmm. but there, there'd been issues with Spa in '79 um, with the condition of the track, mm-hmm. and uh, we were in Zolder. And um, anyway, uh, Luke and Nelly and Rossi were on the other Suzukis, and Kenny was on the Yamaha, of course, and uh, Freddie Spencer even turned up at that race on a 500 Yamaha. And Randy was able to to pull off the result, which was terrific. Was it about reliability for you at that, that phase of the game? You mentioned the fragile nature of, of some of the bikes. What did you go in with from a, a, a you know an approach? Was that, that one of the key things? Well, for sure. I mean, I was there uh, and my guidance was coming really from George Vukmanovic, who had, had experience, and of course Mick Smith and uh, the, the mechanics on that side. So, you know, I was... Um, 
sort of half a step behind them but trying to stay half a step in front uh, and make sure that uh, you know we had good bikes everything was prepared well and we um you know we understood what randy wanted with the bikes and that's pretty much what i learned early it's it's a lot about the rider feeling as much as it is about the bike if the rider's happy with it and feels good uh, we know it's not going to be perfect everywhere on the circuit but it has to be a very very good compromise and uh, that allows him to push where he he knows he can push you used the word mentor before who were the mentors for you in the in the chief mechanic role was george one of them and certainly i mean irv kanemoto was another name that that comes up absolutely you know george sort of got me started and then when uh, i moved over to honda in 83 um, it was George who, who suggested I go there. He had already gone over with Freddie Spencer. Mm-hmm. And Irv was running Freddie in 83 and, and continued to do so for a number of years. Um, but uh, I was asked to do a lot of the testing here at um, Surface Paradise with Honda in those days because I was Australian and mm-hmm. Freddie, Freddie was the rider. So I worked very closely under Irv with George in that period, even though I was working at the Grand Prix for Ron Haslam mm-hmm. in sort of 84. And we did some uh, races in the US with Freddie. We did the Daytona 200 and uh, the champion uh, 200 at Laguna Seca. And Irv asked me to assist them in that in those races. And the following year, he, he uh, asked me to work on Freddie's 500s with George. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I learnt uh, under Irv, sort of, I, I, I could sort of... Um, it's very interesting because in 85, Irv, was, of course, was supervising both the 250 and the 500, mm-hmm. so he had a lot on his plate, as did Freddie. And a lot of what Irv said to us to change, you, you because you weren't involved in the discussions, you had to sort of reverse think it, to sort of say, why are we changing this? Freddie must have said that. Okay. So you start to work, <laughs> you know, we're changing this because uh, Freddie wants the bike to do a certain thing or mm. a gear ratio to be longer or shorter in a certain area so yeah a lot of that was sort of understanding what you're doing uh, not just doing what you're told in line with that you pair up with the Wollongong Wiz Wayne Gardner in 1986 fellow Aussie what was he like to work with back then what were your first <laughs> recollections of Wayne Gardner oh look uh, my first recollections were uh, I didn't have any because I didn't know him even mm. though we were Australians uh, it goes back a little bit further than that. I got a telephone call at the end of um, 85. Uh, they, one, Irv said that, you know, it'd be good if I went over and uh, was chief mechanic to uh, Wayne Gardner. And I said to Irv, look, um, mate, I'm really happy working with you and George and yeah. I, I know my stuff, I can get through the work. And Irv says, oh, I think it'd be, you know, good for you. Yeah. Well, Within sort of 24 hours, there was another phone call from the president of Honda Racing, uh, Mr Aguma, and Mr Aguma said that he thought it would be a good idea if I was to be crew chief for Wayne Gardner. And I explained to him in the same sort of way I had to Irv that I was very happy with the job I had. And he he explained in no uncertain terms that... uh, if Honda felt that I could do more and I didn't really want to do it, then I wasn't part of what Honda were going to go... I wasn't going to be part of Honda going forward. That's an ethos thing with the company. That's yeah. right. So pretty much uh, it was take it or there is no job because we know you can... They, they said, we know you can do it. Mm. Uh, and to be fair, I was... Uh, Wayne got the short end of the straw because um, 
Wayne uh, was coming into a, a factory team with Freddie Spencer yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, he needed uh, really good people around him. Freddie was expected to be the number one rider yeah. and Irv was going to run that side and, and Wayne was going to learn his craft and, and uh, we'd be there supporting him. Well, unfortunately, Freddie's 86 was a disaster yeah. and Wayne became the number one rider mm. so had Wayne perhaps had somebody a little bit more experienced than myself at the time uh, he might have picked up the 86 world title as well why do you you sound like you're being a little hard on yourself there <laughs> I think that uh, when you make it to the factory team as a rider mm. you would expect to get the best of what they've ever, they've got mm. um, but I guess we were building to a mm. two rider team and uh, part of it was um, taking the talent that Honda had in their mechanical teams, uh, which I was one, Stuart Shenton was another, and, uh, you know, uh, Wayne bought one guy from Honda Britain with him, and uh, we were there to, to sort of learn in the first year, but uh, suddenly we find ourselves in the number one Honda team, and uh, we pick up three Grand Prix wins, which was really, really good, and uh, the interest started here in Australia because Wayne was... Uh, um, you know, winning races, finished second in the championship and uh, following year he wins it. Are they stressful times before we get to 87 because it's growth, as you said, in, in the, the race team sense, there's expectation from the factory. The way things work too, the factory uh, design, build, do a lot of things and then, then it sort of works in connection with, with you guys to actually implement. But to get all that right, to get all the ingredients right is not easily done, but you were still winning races. Yes, uh, I mean more from the determination of Wayne because I think um, you know the the bike in '87 was so superior to the '86 bike. Mm. Um, the difference was just incredible. But the engineers at Honda had seen the effort Wayne was putting in, and and uh, most of the time his feet were off the foot pegs, mm. and uh, they realised that their bike wasn't going to be good enough going forward, and they developed the the bike for '87 and. Uh, it was pretty much untouchable all year. We're talking about the NSR 500, which is an icon in, in machine terms, the record of it. It debuted in, in 84. To get back to your point on, on Wayne Gardner, I reckon I can recall an early conversation with him about the bikes, and I, I think he used the word evil, that in the early days they were an evil machine. Why? Why, why were they like that? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think uh, Honda's um, chassis development was hmm. as good as it, it could be. I mean, I... If there's something that makes me immensely proud is that I worked on every one of the NSR 500s from the very beginning mm. to make it the championship winning bike that Wayne won on and then that Mick won five titles on and, mm. and Valentino finished off on that bike in 2001 winning the title. So to see the evolution and change in that motorcycle, albeit still 500cc, and to see it become the bike of choice for anybody who wanted to win the championship um it's a pretty special piece of history when i look back on those years reminisce with me a little bit more because it's a 500 cc two-stroke what did it weigh what kind of power and can you recall some of the speeds perhaps at places like hockenheim and and monza which have some you know some massive straights where you can really unleash that that two-stroke yeah look the power was was phenomenal um there were evolutionary things that happened mm. uh, um, in 98, we went to an unleaded fuel base and, and lost a bit of horsepower. But the last bike I built for Mick 
as a 500 produced 196 horsepower uh, and uh, you know there was no electronics so they were pretty lethal pieces of equipment 200 miles an hour uh, first recorded in Hockenheim in uh, 91 or 2 they were very high speeds but at the same time that high speed didn't always equate into winning the world championship because mm. the Yamaha didn't have that speed and Wayne Rainey was winning on the circuits where speed wasn't the, the absolute necessity and mm. uh, it still happens a little bit today I think with the Ducati you, you see the extra speed but uh, doesn't, tra- doesn't translate into the world titles that perhaps it should so, so Honda got their head around the uh, what they called the Big Bang or the media dubbed the Big Bang in 92 mm-hmm. and uh, we got back some of that acceleration off the shorter corners to sort of gain a metre off every corner which uh, gives you 15, 13 to 15 metres when you enter the straight mm. and so it negated that necessity to have the power but made the bike a lot easier to ride mm. and Mick and Wayne uh, uh, felt the bike was slow but the, when they looked at their lap times they uh, quite impressed and it just seemed too easy. You mentioned Mick, Michael Sidney Doohan. We will get to him in a moment. I just want to um, reflect on the 87 title win for Wayne uh, and you said, I mean it was huge back here in Australia, the, the reaction to it and, and the follow on that has happened from that, from Mick Doohan, I mean there's all kinds of names, even Casey Stoner in more in more recent times. It was a it was a huge thing for, for us in this part of the world, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was, uh, looking back on it, uh, even um, sort of in, in 1990, 1989, 88, um, the interest generated uh, initially by, I think, SBS, mm. uh, and then when it was uh, poached by Channel 9, you, you started to think there may be some commercial value in this. Mm. And uh, it went on and on, and uh, then we had Bob Barnard, refurbish Phillip Island for the first Grand Prix in 89 Uh, a little bit of an issue with uh, tobacco advertising and we've got another circuit built at Eastern Creek so if you look at the knock-on effect from Wayne Gardner's uh, efforts Mm. in 86 uh, right through you know it's fantastic and Mick carried it on Casey Stone has carried it on other guys in other classes have have been part of it Uh, Anthony West people like that Mm. Uh, they've all snuck a Grand Prix win in Jack Miller now is is our next chance to to go on with it and and who will be the next I don't know but I the interest is here I know that from the people uh, that I did I, I associate with today and they're not all motorcycle people but they all are interested in Sunday night usually when it's not at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they all um, know what's going on and it, and you see it on the byline on the news in the morning as to who's who's won the Grand Prix so there's a definite interest in it and I think people that aren't necessarily motorsport people understand that these guys are heroes what they're doing and and um, when they go out go wheel to wheel at 340 50 k's an hour and, and do what they do it is spectacular mate isn't it oh and, and uh, even to me it can be scary you know mm. you, you stand on the rise at Magello and have bikes go past you at 340 kilometers an hour you're 20 yards away from them but mm. uh, they're going straight past your, your eyes just can't keep up with the speed of it it's mm. uh, it's it's awesome i mean it uh, um you know, it could be said, do we need to go that fast to, to yeah. race motorcycles? But, you know, as long as there's motorcycles, there'll be guys who'll race them. Some sections of the media 
called him dead by June, I think, wasn't it, Mick Doohan? Can you remember your first impressions of him and was he a wild child? What was he like? Uh, in, in 89, Mick was... Uh you know, he was great, but he didn't have the experience of the, the guys in front of him, but he wanted to run at their pace. Mm. And I remember one instance uh, in Jerez in, in Spain in 89. Mick came back into the garage after the race uh, had started and he'd crashed. And uh, a bit of gra- uh, straw bale hanging out of his helmet and <laughs> I said to him, what happened? And he said... They were getting away from me, so I shifted into fifth. <laughs> and uh, they were fourth gear, series of fourth gear corners. But the, the, the beautiful thing about Mick was that he never made the same mistake twice. Mm. You, you, would, you would look at him on the racetrack and where you saw to where he got, mm. you know, it, it was absolutely magnificent to watch. You know, he, the, he, the other, he had the other guys beaten before they started for a long period of time there. You're all Aussies, so how did the transition from Gardner to Doohan and Burgess and Co, how did that all unfold and, and what was that like? Um, well, at the end of 88, um, Honda came to me again and, and they just said, we'd like you to do with uh, another young Australian rider, Mick Doohan, what you did with Wayne Gardner. Mm. And I couldn't quite understand the logic of why they wanted me to do that, mm. but... Uh, they asked me to go over to um, a race meeting in Winton where Mick was riding mm. and the first person I saw as I went through the gate was Warren Willing and Warren said, I said, hi, how are you? He, he uh, said, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> I said, oh, no, I'm just having a look. And he said, no, you're not. <laughs> he said, don't worry, he, he's signed for Honda uh, and the Japanese just wanted me to go there and sort of Show, show an interest. Okay. No, you know, we didn't discuss it, but mm. I met Mick for the first time and then we went up to Oran Park for another meeting, I think, and uh, um, that was pretty much it. Um, but, yeah, Mick was... Uh, he learnt so much that year. Mm. Uh, when he injured his finger in the Suzuka eight-hour race, he came back to Australia and he did a lot of training for a few weeks with the triathlon boys on the Gold Coast mm. and when he turned up in Guyana he was he was a completely different physical specimen mm. and uh, so he knew what he had to do and I think for some of the riders these days the first season of having to sort of race on Sunday think about it again on Tuesday mm. drive your motor home to another event that there was no break like there was in Australia you mm. didn't have a month between events go back and play with your mates and then mm. come out and race your bike it, it was serious business and testing in between and I think uh, a lot of the guys uh, just wanted the season to be over mm. and I think Mick could see that uh, he was going to be a lot better than he was in his first season because he knew he had to be. Uh, he's mellowed a bit in, in post-race life but he was he's a, you know at the peak of it a very determined human being, wasn't he? Absolutely. He, he knew uh, what he wanted to do and nothing was going to stop him doing it. And uh, very, very intense. Um, it's very handy to have, you know, Mick had to have somebody sometimes to vent his frustration on. <laughs> uh, fortunately, it wasn't me very often, but uh, Dickie copped his fair, fair <laughs> share of it. Uh, but, uh, no, I mean... Uh, I'm just so happy for Mick that, uh, and for Wayne, you know, mm. that they achieved uh, what they wanted to achieve. We'll get to his five world titles in a moment, but 
That phase of your career working with, with Mick Doohan had the full gamut of emotions, mate, didn't it? Because he was badly injured in, in 92. The operation was botched. Gangrene set in in the, in in the leg. Did you think that it was all over before he'd even won his first world title? And he was damn close to winning it that year too, wasn't oh, he? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's... Uh yeah, it's a year you, I don't think you'll forget for the rest of your life, you know, mm. you, you can't. Um, yeah, it was an absolute tragedy. We were 57-odd points in front. Wayne Rainey was on a plane back to America. Mick crashes in, in, in us and in the second practice, Kevin Schwantz also. Mm. Uh, a bike limps back into the paddock with water oozing out from underneath it, so you, you pretty much got a good idea of What's who, who caused it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mick said to me, he said he, he broke his leg by rolling over. Um, the leg was trapped under the under the bike, so it was like a, a spiral fracture mm. low down on the ankle. Um, and then it was was sort of badly handled from there, in, uh, and to see Mick in, uh, in hospital in Bologna with the necrosis having set in and the... Uh, the bone exposed and then to see him go through the leg crossover to save his foot you know it's just uh, it's staggering you know Um, it was a remarkable decision for them to to go down that path and to to save him to save the leg in that regard wasn't it yes well I think uh, you know Dr Costa could see that there was not enough blood flow to the foot and this was a way Mick was keen to get back to race and Perhaps in a sense that was uh, what uh, drove caused, him. Caused, yeah, I mean the the fact that he wanted it plated immediately and so he could get back so quickly. Mm. The, the poor the doctor may have been put under more pressure than he was capable of uh, handling. And um, yeah, it looked it was just uh, a series of errors, I think. And uh, fortunately, though, there was a the, the bright side was that Mick was able to recover. Uh, satisfactorily to to win five world titles. This is Greg Rust, and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Jeremy Burgess in a moment. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate riders, drivers, designers and collectors I know, like Supercars Hall of Famer Glenn Seaton, the two-time champion who opens up on a frightening crash in the latter part of his career that he never really recovered from. It sort of really rattled me because I suppose I'm a person that when those sort of things are put in place or those things happen to you, you then start to think about death. And those things, once you're a race driver and you start to think about those things all the time or, or when you get under another situation when the race is wet again or, and you're in that wet condition, you're thinking about those things. So I probably struggled from then on. Listen to the full episode with Glenn Seaton here on Rusty's Garage. Double clutch, mainly for shifting gears in vehicles with an unsynchronised manual gearbox. Instead of shifting once, the driver engages the clutch, shifts to neutral, releases the clutch, then engages it again for the final part of the shift, also known as the double shuffle. Did any of that make sense? It's been described as one of the greatest comebacks in world sport. Not many work out. I mean, doing to come back and win five in a row, as you said. I mean, Honda clearly had a good bike but you were big on that whole 80 20 theory weren't you just just explain that yeah look i i think uh, the bike 
it's 20% of it in those days and, mm. and the rider was 80%. The bikes were all difficult to ride. Mm. But the riders who had the, the fitness and the skill and the stamina more than anything to be still competitive towards the end of the race, the Eddie Lawsons, the, the McDoons, the Wayne Gardeners, mm. you know, the Spencers, they were they were the guys. And, of course, Wayne Rainey and uh, so forth. Other guys could win races, but these guys could win multiple races and uh, hence championships. Mm. Um not an easy not an easy craft in anyone's language but those, those guys could do it what modifications did you make you know along the way to the bike that perhaps helped him did you did you do things that, that helps suit him i think the thing that was the most important was that mick could see that the 93 bike wasn't as good as the 92 bike mm-hmm. and he could see that visually by watching ito and daryl and uh, they're always a, a meter offline mm-hmm. The fuel injection that we had in the beginning of the season didn't work and uh, uh, he battled through 93, never happy with the bike. But I think to a degree there was a lot of us thinking that perhaps uh, the leg was more the issue than perhaps the bike. Mm -hmm. However, once we started 94, we did some testing and Mick still wasn't happy with the bike. Uh, It was better in some ways but there were things that needed to be done. And uh, we went to a test in Harama and we, we tried the suspension from 1992 in, in the front and it was transformed the bike completely. Wow. Uh, and then Mick said, right, let's put the 92 shock in the rear. Uh, and they did that and away we went. And we'd been battling prior to that, the Japanese... Uh, workings of is it the same as last year Mm. yes yes it's the same (laughs) yes yes it gives us that we think it gives the same character as last year but it's it's made in a different way Mm -hmm. and uh, mick was sensitive enough to be able to pick all this up Mm. and once we got that changed he just uh, dominated 94. daryl often talks about daryl Beatty. you mentioned before often talks about that Understanding what the Japanese are wanting to do with the development of the bike, but ensuring that it was what the rider needed, and that, that's it's a juggle, that isn't it? It is, you know, to control engineers, and that was the good thing that Mick did uh, in '93. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he told he and Aguma came up with a. Uh, they said we won't change the bike for you. We want you, but we'll keep the bike the same, mm-hmm. which we did. Then we changed the suspension only, and the rest uh, is history, so to speak. So we were. We were close, you know. We had to control from then on what the Japanese did. Mm. The fact that Mick wasn't changing the bike a lot um, didn't excite the chassis department in in Honda because suddenly but, but it clearly went, you'd finessed it. You'd got it the right. way you wanted. It, it was mm. still a 500 cc V4 mm. engine producing more or less the same horsepower, so mm. radical changes weren't necessary. Mm. And um, Mr. Hattori, who ran the chassis department, uh, sort of had to let about nine guys go out of the chassis department because wow. there was nothing to do, you mm. know. Um, and uh, the bike didn't change till Valentino changed uh, the engine position for 2001. We'll talk more about Valentino in a second, but, but that was a phenomenal period. In, in the last two questions, you've rattled off some incredible names. Schwantz, Lawson, Rainey, um, Doohan. You can throw Daryl Beatty into that mix. It was a great chapter, mate, wasn't it, for the sport? It, it was. Uh, you, you, never, you never really quite knew, knew who was going to win. Um, we'd put Mick on pole position and, well, if, if he wasn't on pole position, he was... He was a man uh, who was pretty uh, pretty aggro about the situation. 
and we used to... Uh, As you go about controlling that, how well, do you deal with that? <laughs> there, there's a sort of comedic value to it because when we would get him onto pole position, he'd, he'd go into the first corner in sixth <laughs> so, and then he'd win the race. But if he qualified second, third or fourth, it was like the end of the world. Mm. But, uh, Were you reminding him of this? Or? Well, you, you didn't say too much to Mick. You, know, you just yeah. uh, said it amongst the boys in the garage. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, um, you know, Mick, Mick now is probably, as far as motorcycling is concerned, a lot more relaxed than he was uh, mm-hmm. in those days. Um, and we have some good laughs about it. Mm-hmm. People talk about it being a mind game, JB, as much as the bike, as much as the physical aspect of the riding and the stamina that you talked about before that you need. Doohan and Valentino Rossi seem like they are masters of that side. Are they from what you've witnessed or or, or is it more that their record, their presence, perhaps make rivals stumble in some respect that they are a little bit daunted by those guys? Well, I, th- I think it can it, it can be a, a combination of both. Mm. I mean, without question, you look at 54 Grand Prix wins for Mick and somewhere near 115, 116 MotoGP wins for Valentino. Mm. They're better than the other guys. Mm. There, there's no question. And, and Mick, uh, in the five years he was there, he, uh, at the top, he, he won a lot of Grand Prix. He didn't just win the championship, uh, except for the one year, perhaps, that Daryl pushed him on the Suzuki. Mm. And uh, Mick made a few mistakes earlier in the season that year that he perhaps shouldn't have made. Um, and uh, um, Daryl, you know, being an Australian, probably put a little bit of extra pressure on Mick and Daryl was probably laughing all the time. Knowing <laughs> <laughs> what Daryl's like, I'm, I'm sure that was the case. Um, injury ultimately ended Mick's reign. Did you contemplate stopping then, or, or how did the whole Valentino Rossi thing come about? Um, no, I mean, it's been reported that I contemplated, but a lot of things have been reported that I, see, I said. or And, uh, no, I hadn't uh, even thought about it. When Mick was hurt in Jerez in... Uh, Ninety-nine. I essentially went home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't Mac to do. We didn't know when Mick was going to come back. And then around August, Mick sort of made the decision that he wasn't going to return. Mm-hmm. Mick was then at that point going to run a team with money from Shell, I believe. And uh, at the end of the season, Honda let me go. And they said, uh, you uh, can go and work with Mick Doohan in his team. And uh, I thought, oh, that'll be all right. Mm-hmm. So I'll still be under the Honda banner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the Mick, uh, uh, well, a couple of the other blokes in the team had uh, decided to do the same thing, or Honda had told them, Dickie, that uh, for one, that uh, was, wasn't required and that we're shipping you over to Mick Doohan's team, which was good. Nobody nobody worried. It was still uh, it was still in Grand Prix, still in the Honda thing, probably have better working conditions and more money. So <laughs> it was all going to look pretty good. Uh, and then it all... Um, fell about and I remember Alex Briggs who was also one of the guys uh, who'd come across ringing me up and saying JB what are we going to do and I said well you know I was sweating a bit because these kids had mortgages and families and everything else and I'd made the call to come across Uh, and I sort of got my head together and I I worked out that they they didn't have anybody to run Valentino if the McDoan team had collapsed anyway so mm. essentially they weren't going to let Valentino go mm. go, and they needed um, the people to run him 
he came in incredibly well credentialed mate from a, a 125 title win a 250 title win before he joined uh, you guys how polished was he as a rider at that time and, and what were your first sort of recollections of working with one of the greatest of all time now oh, absolutely brilliant there's no question about it he, he from the first moment he got on the bike his ability to understand and and uh, you have to remember that Valentino was coming from an Italian team with an Italian bike mm. to ra- race with an Australian team on a Japanese bike mm. he was the one making the biggest commitment and I, I said to the guys I said the only way this is going to get messed up is if we mess it up mm-hmm. so we've got to make sure we you know we give him exactly what he wants when he wants it uh, you know I, th- I have to thank Aprilia and all those people for for schooling Valentino and shaping him in the right way and uh, when you get to meet his parents you understand that you know they are very level-headed people and uh, Valentino had a a very good grounding all the way through just brilliant the moment he got on the bike he everything he brought from his days in the 125 to the days in the 250 like simple things like getting off the bike and telling me what the temperature is and I say you don't have to do that you know and um, talking about too much pressure on this helmet because the screen's not in the right position because he's learned that on the 125s mm. you know so he knew how to maximise every little bit of the bike uh, to make it how he had been taught that it should be mm-hmm. having myself never worked on 125s mm. you know this was all something new to me I used to say to Mick and Wayne at Hockenheim mm. and the high speed circuits to get your feet up on the pegs on the straights rather than have a couple of air brakes hanging out the side and that would pick you up two, three, four kilometres an hour uh, but Valentino was doing this on the 125 mm-hmm. and automatically. Mm-hmm. So a very, very unique uh, young man and an absolute pleasure to work with. That must have made you guys feel better in the sense that there was all this uncertainty going in and here you had this superstar on the rise, everything coming together and he was, you know, gelling straight away, wasn't he? Absolutely. It was a fantastic little team, you know. We had a beer sponsor, yep. which was important for the Australians. <laughs> <coughs> we, we weren't allowed to be part of the factory team. Uh, I had to put the team together with, uh, um, with Dick and, and Alex Briggs and... I hired Gary Coleman from uh, Newcastle to be the, the helper and truck driver. So it was pretty much an all-Australian team. Mm. And we had one Japanese uh, mechanic, uh, sorry, uh, engineer with us, and Bernard Ancio, uh, Wayne Rainey's old mechanic, who, who was a Belgian. Mm. And we were based in Belgium, so everything just clicked. And uh, because of the contract with Honda and Repsol, we... We couldn't have anything to do with them. Hmm. And uh, we'd watch the chaos in the garages next door and we just plugged away with our first-year Grand Prix 500 rider and listened to what he said and we finished second in the championship. Just quietly making noise next door and <laughs> doing your own thing. Well, they, they looked on very closely, though, didn't they? they yeah, they, they were in a lot of trouble. Uh, Alex had won, Alex Creville had won the championship. They had uh, Sede Gibbonau as well and uh, Okada, I think, if my memory serves me. But, uh, you know, they, they couldn't find the cause of why they didn't think the bike was any good and they changed every, everything from swing arm to frames and it was a, an engine character in the porting. Which mm. uh, So everything they changed, uh, we just kept Valentino on the same bike, got the right porting in the cylinders and uh, a little bit uh, later than the other, t- other guys, but we hadn't made the confusion they'd made uh, earlier on and, um, you know, we had to 
a good bike and uh, the Japanese could see that the future was to back Valentino going forward. Among the many special places he has in the record books, he got the last 500cc world title, then the first of the new four-stroke era, MotoGP. Did you miss the 500cc two-strokes or were you just impressed by the new direction, the new bikes? Uh, I didn't miss them. I mean, you, you look back and you, you you miss things about them. But I'd worked with the four strokes, the RVF and the eight-hour races, which was a very, very special bike built by Honda. Mm-hmm. And I could see how good these uh, four strokes were going to be. And I always looked at the bike as just being a tool for allowing the rider to achieve what he wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. Two-stroke or four-stroke didn't worry me much at all. Um, and away we went, you know, with the uh, Mr. Yoshimura from Honda got me involved in the um, RC211. I was one of the first people to see that it was a V5, mm-hmm. um, which was pretty impressive. And uh, we tested it after the eight-hour race in uh, uh, 2001. And there were some significant things that uh, Valentino didn't like about it. Honda had built it with very little cowling and very little wind protection because they knew how powerful it was and they they knew that uh, they didn't need to go too far but it was very difficult for Valentino to ride it, talking about the pressure on his helmet, which that sort of thing, which... Did that require wind tunnel stuff? What did you do? No, we just, we started lifting the screens higher and higher, but Honda didn't want to do it because the styling department was involved and, and there was various issues like that. You weren't just dealing with the race department at Honda you're dealing with what's this bike going to do for our sales mm. and uh, so they'd, they'd gone on a con- concept and to, to Yoshimura's credit we had nine, a list of nine things which were seriously no good uh, as far as we were concerned by the time we tested it in December in Jerez that year all but one of them had been fixed awesome. and Valentino uh, had indicated that he wanted to ride his 500 in the 2002 Championship and Yoshimura was smart enough to say to the engineering group and to myself that it's our job to make the four stroke so that Valentino has no choice. Mm-hmm. So he has to go that way, and uh, that's exactly what happened. He, he Kato, the, the rider who was um, unfortunately killed some years later in, in Suzuka, was riding the 500 at the end of 2001 in Jerez. And uh, Valentino was on the four-stroke, the RC211, and he came into me and he said, I'm going to have to ride the (laughs) four-stroke. He said the the advantage of the two-stroke in the corner and in the braking area is is outweighed by the fact that I don't pass the two-stroke in that area. I pass it in third and fourth gear on the straight. Mm. So the power was just... um, it was just a no-brainer, although the bike was going to be more difficult to stop and turn, probably not as nice off of the corner initially in its in its infancy. Mm. He would have been gobbled up by everybody on the four-stroke on the third, fourth, fifth gear shifts. Mm. So from that point, we tried to make sure that we could make the RC211 as comfortable for Valentino as we could. In addition to the engine change and the the power that you that you talk about there, what other technical innovations were you seeing come in at that time? Because it was a great period of growth for, for bike racing, wasn't it? It was. The, the Japanese, uh, through their four-stroke technology in Formula One, they knew what was available. Hmm. It was only at a test before the last race of the season in 2002 that we uh, got fly-by-wire... Uh, throttle with traction control and 
Valentino came in and said, uh, don't tell anybody about this. It, it's almost cheating. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you staggered about what the bike could do when you, you know, when you look back at different things? I, I was, um, well, having worked with four strikes, I, you know, I wasn't, wasn't staggered, but I think the people who had the biggest job was Michelin, the tyre company, to, mm-hmm. to develop tyres so quickly mm. for these bikes, and they did a magnificent job. Mm. Uh, they were still having to build tyres for the 500s because they could run in the same race at that time. Mm. But, uh, you know, the four-stroke was clearly an, an advantage over the two-stroke, so very quickly the manufacturers built more four-strokes. Um, and... Um, yeah, we uh, away we went, but their technology—that was the biggest thing that year. Was uh, that and uh, you know working with slipper clutches, which uh, to be fair, the, the Honda one at that time wasn't particularly good. Mm. Uh, the corner entry was difficult. Uh, sometimes we didn't use a slipper clutch; we used a normal fixed clutch, but uh, that could bring problems uh, mid corner. So uh, you know we we had to refine everything so it was, it was a good time for all. Valentino stayed with Honda until the end of, of 03 before the, the high profile move the the defection if you like to Yamaha how uh, much of Valentino's decision contributed to what you ultimately decided to do because you had been with Honda for 20 years that mustn't have been an easy call to make to decide to to leave. No it wasn't easy I mean I I was when the rumours were getting around that Valentino was leaving and and, uh, Valentino had sort of tentatively spoken to me and said, uh, you know, if I was to leave, what would you do? Mm. uh, And, uh, you know, I didn't sort of... Commit. Didn't think, you know, why are you going to leave? You've Mm. just won three world titles. We've got the bike, we've got the team. Mm. And uh, when it started to get more serious, I was given the brief by Tachikawa. Uh, Honda to convince Valentino to stay Mm -hmm. and uh, you know we know now in hindsight that Valentino had signed an agreement I think as early as April or something to to go to Yamaha Mm. or uh, wherever um, where did where did Honda err there in in, in your opinion I mean it is you know pretty much they they said that they were going to build more RC211s and they were going to give them to more riders and all bikes would be the same. Mm-hmm. Valentino felt, quite rightly, that you know that uh, he'd won them three championships and he perhaps deserved something a little bit better, mm-hmm. which, to be perfectly honest, he would have got. Mm. You know, But they, Honda can't say that when mm. they're trying to farm these bikes out to customers. Mm. They're all going to be the same. But mm. anyway, I think uh, there was some issues... Uh, Valentino wasn't happy and he made the decision to go. And when I asked him, I, uh, well, I said to him exactly what I just said before, you know, we've got the, we've got the bike, we've mm. got the rider, we've got the team. And his words to me were, it's more than that, Jerry. OK, so we end up in Japan and this is where it uh, really came to a head. Uh, Valentino uh, was given the Honda contract to sign and uh, had it all weekend and it... Uh, before the warm-up on Sunday morning, he he brings a contract down and hands it to Carlo Ferrani, who looks at it and it's not signed, who hands it to Honda, who look at it and it's not signed. <laughs> and uh, I believe the Honda people said, oh, but it's not signed. Mm. And uh, Carlo, This is heavy, mate, on race day. Yeah, yeah, and Carlo says, yeah, it's not signed. And I think then they realised that... They'd lost him. 
he was gone. But I think the smart ones knew probably before. Was I don't believe the factories don't mm. don't communicate to a degree. But from my side, getting back to the original question, um, I went into his cabin on in that morning, and uh, he was a bit down in the dumps. You know, it's been a high pressure weekend for him. We got chatting, and I said. Uh, so something he said, well, if you think it'll make any difference, I'll come with you. And uh, Ucho and him, the next minute, they're like euphoric. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know he, he might not think that now, but he, he you know, he he, he was absolutely, uh, you know, that was like the biggest relief he mm-hmm. could have had. And you, you uh, clearly didn't decide that on a whim, though, mate. That that, that wasn't an I easy did. call. I said did it straight you? off the top of my head, you know, and wow. uh, and I wasn't really doing anything at Honda than I hadn't done before. It's mm. just a repetitive exercise. This would be a new challenge, but I did realise clearly that um, crossing that bridge to Yamaha, there's, if it doesn't work, there's no going back. Mm. So I, I went into the garage and I said to the boys, uh, Gary and um, Alex, Alex and Bernie, mm. I said, I'm going to Yamaha. And uh, Briggsy said, well, if you're going, JB, I'm going going too. (laughs) (laughs) I'll learn more over there with you than I will by staying here. So uh, from that point, next race was Phillip Island and we had the clandestine meetings with uh, the Yamaha hierarchy and uh, the rest is road race history, so to speak. Amazing. The Yamaha is immediately successful in Rossi's hands. It seems like fairy tale stuff, but in some ways, was that proof of your 80-20 theory? Because it wasn't quite the perfect bike to begin with, was it? No, it, it wasn't, but it wasn't that bad either. Mm-hmm. I think I think what Yamaha had at the time was um, perhaps not the Yamaha. The Yamaha side was trying to help their riders. Their riders at the time were Max Biaggi and um, uh, Melandri. Uh, yeah. And on the other side of the garage, I think they had Carlos Checker and... Uh, um, that's right, they did too. Uh, Arbe. Arbe. Mm. Uh, and, and we got there and uh, um, I went to a test in November um, in Sepang, but they wouldn't let Valentino test, Honda wouldn't let Valentino test until January. But the, the whole thing was very much well organised by Yamaha. <laughs> we can deliver this by this date, this by that date, this by that date, but we promise we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they they had some uh, systems into like guillotine type slide arrangements in their throttle bodies, which are not good on a on a motorcycle, but are quite good on a Formula Two mm-hmm. car. Yep. So there were things that I could obviously see were needed oh, to be not mm. could be fixed, but they also knew, which mm-hmm. is you know I think mm. it's out there in the public domain. Everybody should know it. So they got on the wrong track in some ways by trying to help the riders. Uh, too much, but uh, probably most of the credit would have to go to Mr. Furusawa, who was pretty much the Mr. Fix It, mm. who looked at all of, obviously had the ear of the board, and he could look at all the, the uh, factions of Yamaha that worked and didn't work, and and could pretty much say we need to spend another thirty million over there or or whatever. So um, yeah, we get into um, testing and. Um, Valentino does about eight laps on it and he says, you know, it's Jerry, it's, it's not so bad. And, uh, you know, I'd been hearing from the Italian mechanics that were working in the garage that we'd never beat Honda and everything else. And mm. 
I see a bit of this happening right now in Yamaha. You know, yeah, it's the same, listening to what I hear, it's the same spiral. It's a belief that other people have got better than what you've got. Mm. That has to be dispelled straight away. And, mm. and that's what I started to do. I started to say to these Italian mechanics, how do you know that when you don't know what Honda have got? Mm. But they, they were just going, oh, you won't beat Honda. Mm. And I said, uh, you know, people came up to me and they said, you'll never win with an inline four uh, against a V4. And I go to all my engineering books and I go, well, there's nothing in here that says that. Mm. Uh, I've got less friction in, a, in an inline four. We had a 1600 cast iron BMW engine in Formula One uh, in the turbo years, mm. spanking everything that was out there. Mm. So, you know, the, the engine... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. only the engine's uh, not the issue. So, you know, we just started work. And um, I clearly remember Valentino, as I said, saying it's not so bad. He, he said, but uh, I'm locking the brake. And I said, fantastic. And, and, <laughs> That's an easy fix. Yeah, and, you know, he looked at me and he said, uh, you know, in his blank stare, uh, uh, as did uh, the Japanese engineer. I said, well, or engineers, because there was 30 of them around him after his first ride. Uh, and I said, well, that's the only part of this motorcycle that's the same as we had on the Honda 320 Brembo brakes and we never locked the Honda wheel yeah. I said we're going to lift the bike 20 millimetres and the Japanese sucking their teeth we lift it 20 millimetres he said perfect he said that's it uh, the Japanese uh, Yamaha chassis guys are very clever so the next test we did we had another 20 mil in the swing arm so if they like to keep the front axle centre position rear wheel position centre of mass yes. in a particular yep. circle so if you lengthen one you've got to do to the other. something mm. to the other mm. so that was pretty much it and then uh, tested at Phillip Island in 2004 the th new throttle bodies came mm. uh, went across to uh, welcome in South Africa and uh, qualified for, uh, fastest in the first practice, fastest in the second, third, warm-up. We only had to replicate it in the race, which was the big unknown, and uh, probably saw one of the best uh, battles between two riders, uh, Max Biaggi and Valentino, and Valentino on top. It was a phenomenal race, un unforgettable in many respects. What did that mean to... To Yamaha, and what did it mean to even to Valentino? I guess you know such a significant break from from Honda, and to go across and to achieve that with a with a different manufacturer. Look, it, it meant a lot to to Valentino, and it, it certainly excited us. Mm. The Yamaha Japanese that uh, I worked very closely with had it had expected to win two or three races towards the end of the season. Okay, so they just went. You know, the party that night was pretty good <laughs> and, uh, but it was only one race hmm. you know we, we had to see what could happen and uh, have, having come from that brilliant race in, in Welcome to go to Jerez in the rain you know the, the engine characteristic of this Yamaha which allowed Valentino to get off the line very well with hmm. a very torquey bottom end caused us horrible problems in the rain hmm. so uh, you know I said about then uh, realising that uh, we could be going for the championship at Phillip Island in the rain. And we practised in the rain, but fortunately we never had another wet race in the season. Mm. But we had a lot of wet practices, so we were able to work on the bike, get the uh, power of the engine 
the power delivery more linear to the throttle mm. uh, for the engines for uh, 2005. So, you know, we had the two groups. The groups working to win in 2004, which was the people with round eyes. Yes. And the group from Japan wanting to win in 2005, which was Yamaha's 50th anniversary which was part of the whole process of push Mm. but I could see them starting to give up uh, thinking about giving up uh, and not continuing to develop for the 2004 bike uh, and focus everything on 2005 and yet we were within sight of winning the championship and I was really really scared that uh, they were going to because all the engineering group was pretty much working for Mm. the future it was quite a worrying Period. How did you control all that or handle all that? Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I think uh, you spoke to people and they they nodded their heads, but you didn't really know if what they were going to be doing that. Mm. And uh, there was no way we were going to win the race in Qatar in that heat because we had fuel pumps on top of engines and uh, the the bike was uh, pretty much incapable of running the whole distance. So when the fuel in the the tank, the last few litres got very hot the fuel pumps wouldn't work mm-hmm. so we couldn't keep the fuel cool because it was 47 degrees nice. and, uh, anyway uh, other issues took place before that and uh, he didn't finish the race regardless so uh, but he uh, was determined that said hey, Jiva now would never beat him again and mm-hmm. to this day that stands true, true. <laughs> <laughs> The seven-year stint that you guys had with Yamaha bears plenty of fruit, mate. That's in the in the record books. Valentino ultimately decided to then go to Ducati, an Italian on an Italian bike. It seems like a match made in heaven. You go to the core group, go to Casey Stoner had won a title on a on a Ducati. Everyone thought Valentino would do the same, and it wasn't to be. Look, looking back on it now, what was what was missing? Uh, a lot of things were missing, but. Um we we can know the brilliance of Casey as a rider mm. in 2008 7 when mm. he won the title it was a new era of the 800 and clearly the Ducati was a better bike it had the Bridgestone tyres which Valentino subsequently changed over to um, it had Casey Stoner although he wasn't the one they expected to win the title it was Loris mm. uh, and they had massive electronic component and neither of the two Japanese companies, Yamaha or Honda, appeared to want to spend that sort of money so quickly. They knew it was coming, mm-hmm. but it's, it tells me beyond doubt that those companies do talk to each other about how much they're going to spend in racing because Honda could have brought in all of those electronics and more. Mm. Um, written the cheque. Written the cheque in a way. But I think their intention was to introduce over the next four or five years, a little by little each year, and then arrive at that point. Casey proved beyond all doubt he's a brilliant rider by backing that up by riding the Honda to a title in 2011. Uh, so it goes without, without saying. But I think the tyres, the bike, the rider was the perfect situation in 2007. Mm-hmm. 2008, we'd gone to the Bridgestone tyre we had about another six guys in the garage electronics and Valentino wins eight and nine. Mm. So the, the the response was very quick. Yes. Uh, I just would have loved to have been 
uh, a fly on the wall in Ducati in uh, 2006 when they had the whiteboard out to uh, design the bike they were going to design for 2007 and uh, work on all these electronics and fuel saving and freezing fuel and all the things that became normal Mm. after Ducati. Yeah. They did it first, and it's so good to see a small company get up. Mm. It keeps us all interested in racing. Mm. Um, but that was it. Um, Yamaha win the next three. Casey wins on the Honda in the next one. So, yeah, it was fairly short-lived. Uh, but the uh, for us, going to Ducati, at that time the GFC uh, was having its effect on the Japanese companies, mm-hmm. and uh, they told Valentino we can no longer afford to pay you the the money we've been paying you Mm -hmm. we're going to have to reduce but on the other hand Lorenzo who was probably on something significantly less was given an increase and Valentino I think felt that uh, they were taking money from him and giving it Mm. to Lorenzo when he'd made such a big contribution absolutely Mm. so he I mean I know that Valentino had agreed to go to Ducati very early in the season because I know when Ducati spoke to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was very, very early. Hmm. In, uh, in fact, it was one day after the first race hmm. in Europe. So Amazing. Yeah, the, everything was in place and um, Valentino, as we discussed, as we, the year went on, he said, well, we know how fast Nicky goes. We've been with the team with Nicky. Hmm. Uh, will be half a second faster than Nicky. Mm. Um, but Valentino injured his shoulder in a motocross accident, mm. so he was never good all year. He had the operation at the end of the year. We knew it was going to be uh, five or six months till that was at full strength, which was going to be May. Mm. But he didn't like the bike from the moment he got on it. It just was not him. Can you put that down to one thing or not really? Is it a combination? I, I think mainly engine character okay. because a, a lot of, and this is what we found when we went to Yamaha, that mm. Melandria Max, they couldn't establish. One said it was the engine, one said it was the chassis. But that that connection with the throttle, mm. which starts to load the chassis, load the rear suspension and, and allow the power to be put down is so critical. Mm. And it's, it's, it isn't really easy to determine if the bike is handling badly or the engine is causing the bike to handle badly. Mm. And uh, I still see today um, a Ducati that is capable of winning where it can use its superior strength of passing on the straightaway, but in other places it struggles. And and Casey always won his races from the front. In the latter years after 2007, you know, he'd make a good start and uh, that'd be it. But if he had to fight, as we saw in Laguna Seca, it was never never going to be that way for him. So, um, yeah, all, all said and done. The people at Ducati were lovely, really great, great people, but a bit of a culture there that uh, surprised me as much as they think that they do things the same way as the Japanese. When I arrived there in December of 2010... We started to build the bikes, and I said to Filippo, these will be the test bikes. He said, no, these are your race bikes. And I said, Valentino hasn't even ridden the bike yet. Where's the prototype? Mm. So, you know, these are your bikes. You go and race them. Uh, 
and uh, Nikki uh, and Juan on the other side of the garage, they were happy to, to do their job and time and time again they just put the bike back to where it was the year before whereas we wanted to develop the bike we wanted to mm. we just didn't want to be there riding the bike so you know we spent a lot of time with a different bike trying different things going in different directions uh, pretty much to no avail he is back now with with yamaha valentine i'm talking about you stopped working with him at the end of 2013 to use your words at the time, you were you were blindsided by that call. Now that the dust has settled, how do you how do you feel about all that? Uh, pretty much as I thought it would pan out. Mm. Uh, I always felt I'd said prior to um, parting ways at the end of that season when Valentino and I discussed the future about three weeks before. Mm. I said I wasn't interested in signing any more multi-year contracts. Mm. I'd go year by year, and as long as he wanted me there. And he, he was fine with that. Mm. Uh, and then I think he probably thought, well, if I'm going to change at the end of next year, I might as well change now, mm. you know, and something had to change. Mm. And for me, I was uh, happy with what I'd done. Um, As you should be. And we were only ever repeating ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I was too old and didn't want to commit five years to taking on a young rider. Mm. As soon as I got home here... I had two, two offers to go back to MotoGP with different teams and one, one offer to, as a manager in World Superbike. So I, you know, again, everything was the same. I don't want to commit to the, uh, to the five years. I was 60 years old yeah. at the time. I clearly, as you wind down, you don't just wind down in a month out of a job like that, you know, after several months, 10 months, 12 months. I realised that that sort of pressure is for guys in their 40s, not guys in their 60s. Mm. So I'd see them on the grid, you know, the weather's changing and and one wrong call and you've ruined a guy's world championship. Mm. So the longer I was out of it, the happier I'd been to be out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I enjoyed my time there and I I think uh, um, I've had a pretty sensible approach to retirement Uh, the first thing I said I always knew one day I'd retire Mm -hmm. as everybody does so um, don't be scared of it embrace it Mm -hmm. and find things to to occupy your life you know just do those things you want to do don't don't vegetate just uh, you know get out pick up the golf sticks do whatever but have some interests bit of tennis and some car restoration which we'll get to in in a moment bit of tennis not not very good tennis (laughs) (laughs) right before we talk cars, I'm going to throw some names at you and in a few words, I want you to tell me the first thing that pops into your mind. Wayne Gardner. Tough. Daryl Beatty. Funny. <laughs> Mick Doohan. Determined. Valentino Rossi. Calm. Freddie Spencer. Brilliant. Kevin Schwantz. Uh... Great. <laughs> I don't know. Schwantzy to me, uh, yeah, look, uh, entertainer, really. He was an entertainer. He entertained. He had massive followings. Crashes or not, Kevin was, uh, yeah, he's entertainer for sure. And finally, Casey Stoner. Hard. Yeah? <laughs> hard in the sense that... Uh, so hard on himself in many ways, you know. Um, so relaxed in the airports to talk to about mm. four wheel drives or fishing or whatever, and then so hard on himself uh, um, at, at the circuit. You almost say that, and probably Casey's the only one that could answer this that you wish he'd stuck at it at longer. 
I think a lot of people did, mm. but uh, Casey was always very honest. He said he wasn't going to be there for a long time. Uh, he used to spend a lot of time hanging at the front of our garage and chatting when he's riding 250 and 125s. And, uh, you know, he was very much in line to ride a Yamaha until I think Valentino put the kibosh on that. So mm. I think that's probably where some of the, the angst between that's Valentino right. or Casey and Valentino comes from. You touched on Laguna Seca there before, and that was a flashpoint in their in their rivalry. An unbelievable pass by Valentino at the at the corkscrew, and it's been replayed countless times since. Casey was aggrieved um, about it at the time. Uh, you're an Aussie in in the Rossi camp, and and there's another Aussie miffed at the time. Was that did it become delicate in the paddock? Could you talk to Casey at that stage? Oh, that? I, I can tell you the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, <clears throat> Casey had been a second a lap faster than us all weekend. Mm. And uh, it's the first time I said to Valentino anything about any race strategy. I said, uh, the one thing that Casey hasn't had to deal with is a bike in front of him. If you can get in front of him, uh, he's got a whole different race on his hands. Mm. And Valentino just made sure for the beginning of that race, every time that Casey got past him on the straight, and it's very hard to pass on the straight at Laguna because it's a long curve. Mm. So even with a slower bike, you can actually make it very difficult. But we were able to do that, and Valentino rode, uh, you know, probably one of the races of his life, if mm. not the race of his life. And it clearly frustrated Casey or upset Casey to to the point where he made a mistake. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think we were 16 seconds clear of Christopher Mullen at the time. Uh, so from that point on was pretty easy but it was an intense race and it was cut and thrust on every lap I think there was almost a pass on every lap and a repass on every lap uh, after the race um, in the Parc Ferme Casey came over to me and sprayed me with something a spray it gave me a spray about not what, champagne what, but no no <laughs> what did you what did you think of that and I just said did he run into you hmm. and he apparently never did so uh, hmm. That was the end of the conversation. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we knew what we had to do uh, um, was to to put Casey in a situation that he felt uncomfortable with. Uh, We knew we didn't have the lap time that Casey could do on his own, but Casey could only do that lap time on his own when he had the racetrack to himself. There's nobody in front of him. In the garage is a Jaguar. I think you joked about it with Daryl, repair and despair. (laughs) (laughs) I sense that you you love some of the the post-war development that that has filtered through to things like Jaguar. Yeah, I I think, I mean, I I got an interest in cars well before I had an interest in bikes. I mean, I used to follow car racing, Graham Hill and Jimmy Clark when I was a boy. But bikes became the means of transport and the affordable thing and then they just took over but I never lost the 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 passion for cars and uh, the post-war era in the UK when uh, they'd been pumping so much money into the war effort and all the uh, engineering companies were given uh, sort of amounts of money to you know build the military that factory and the military sort of hardware we need and the XK engine by Jaguar with a six-cylinder double overhead camshaft engine, uh, hemispherical combustion chambers, and uh, is a great engine, and I always uh, loved the Mark II Jag. Uh, so uh, 
in the latter part of my racing career I bought a Mark II Jag and rebuilt it from the ground up. Tell us about it. Originally delivered in 1963 by Bryson's in Sydney, yes, is that right? 64, 64. by Bryson's Right. Okay. And how did you track it down? I mean, you're, you're spending the better part of your racing career overseas every year. Are you on the internet tracking this thing down? <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, well, there's a lot of time in hotel rooms and okay. uh, the internet was coming on, uh, on fairly strong in those days. And I, I looked for years for a good one, and uh, there was a lot of rust in them. And so I went and bought a Triumph TR4 as my second choice because I couldn't find a good Jag. But stupidly, I kept palming the papers, uh, and uh, suddenly a Jag came up here in Adelaide. And I thought it was too close not to have a look at it. So I went down and I lifted the boot up and lifted up the cover over the spare wheel, and there was no rust there, so that was a good sign. Mm. So I progressed around the vehicle and uh, the guy said to me, oh, you take it away, I know who you are, take it and bring it back when you want. Uh, so I took it to mate's place and had an ultra tune and we put it over the hoist, no rust underneath. So, so I bought it, but I, I knew there would be rust in it, it's just yeah. that we couldn't see it. And uh, I brought it home and I put the angle grinder in behind the, in the front wheel arch and out came white dust, so it was f- full of bog. Then I just started to to uh, work on it and reskin the doors and repaint it and uh, reupholster it. And that's pretty much where we are today. Is it finished? Is it concourse spec? How long did it take? It, it, it took about three years. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not concourse. It's very very good, mm-hmm. but. Uh, uh, it's ne- never finished if you've got a classic car. <laughs> There's always, I could I have a new wiring harness I want to put in it. Um, but no, it's never finished and I've still got the TR4 as well. So I've got two vehicles that I spread my time between. Is the TR4, uh, how far advanced on that project are you? If you and I got down there for half an hour, we could be driving it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I've just ordered some more parts from the UK this morning before you came. Uh, the new do, uh, trim for the door, inside the door, and a couple of little bits and pieces, but should be ready to go in a fortnight. Beautiful. And the Jag is something that you and your lovely wife, Claudine, just throw the cap and the scarf on and go down around the wineries. What do you do? <laughs> um, no, not so much. Um, I go out every second Wednesday with a few like-minded people. Yes. Got out. Our guy's got a, a Morgan and there's a 246 Dino and... Uh, couple of cobras and a couple of bits and pieces so yeah we go out for a coffee or run them around they're pretty much spring and autumn cars you know okay. because there's no no uh, air conditioning in the jag and uh, the winter would make uh, i don't like taking it out on wet roads so <laughs> something to do when it's not as selfish as a motorcycle you can take uh, the wife and somebody else with you have you kept it absolutely uh, original or true to its its um, its build? No, I mean, it's got wider triple lace competition wire wheels on it, four piston front calipers um, and the paint's not an, not an original Jaguar green, but it is Brooklyn's green, which is actually a Leyland colour mm-hmm. but not many people would know that What about work still to be completed on it? I'd like to uh, take the engine back out again uh, I bought some. I've got another engine down there that I'd like to. <laughs> That's a shock. <laughs> to put in it uh, uh, with alloy flywheels and uh, just trick it up a little bit. Beautiful. But uh, you know, it's a big job. 
And you've had the Triumph longer, did you say? Where did you track that down? What's the history on that? Uh, The TR4, a friend of mine had it, and I noticed in an advertisement in the car sales that he had it, and he only lived over the hill here, so I went over with a few grand less than he had, and his daughter was no longer driving it to university, and uh, she'd picked up a netball scholarship or something in Newcastle, so I made him an offer, and... Brought it home. (laughs) How much work has got to be done on that? I mean, you talked about the fact that we could get it going in half an hour, but what's the ultimate goal with it? And and basically, it's done. I mean, yeah, just got to paint it. Oh, oh, sorry, I painted it myself. Mm -hmm. First car I've ever painted. How'd you go with that? Uh, Everybody looks at it and says it's great, but I can see a lot of things that aren't great. You are a hard marker. But yeah, you can get carried away and spend way too much money because. um, it's probably only worth about 25000 at the end, but, uh, um, yeah, you just uh, got to be sensible about these things. And you just, yeah. Am I right in saying that to complete the British box set, you also want a Series 1 Land Rover too? Is that right? Well, well that would give me the saloon, the soft top, <laughs> and, and, the, and the four-wheel drive <laughs> component. <laughs> so the, the, other than a... Uh, a motorcycle, British motorcycle, a 69 Bonneville, that, you know, that would be the full set, wouldn't it? It staggers me. Am I right in saying you don't have a bike project or you do? I don't have a bike project. Amazing. I, yeah, I do a lot of helping out with the guys running some uh, classic Suzuki's uh, uh, in New Zealand and in Australia and that, but uh, I'd be comfortable finding something like that, but I'd have to get rid of something. Yeah. What would you? What bike would you go for if you, if you could? Uh, probably an old... Uh, Early 70s TR500, water-cooled Suzuki Grand Prix racer. Amazing. Almost back to where it all started, mate, in some respects. Close to, close to. Close to, yeah. They are, not the RG because they're, they're, you know, they're beyond it, but mm. it doesn't only involve the cost of that bike, of course, because then you've got to buy the high ace van to run it around. <laughs> so what, what starts out at a modest amount ends up double modest amounts. So, so a lot of thinking to be done. It's been fantastic to talk to you, mate. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Rusty. Thank you very much. We're just about to start it. I hope it doesn't embarrass me and not start. <laughs> the beautiful Mark II Jag. Stand by. next episode of Rusty's Garage, I talk to Shane Jacobson, Aussie comedian, actor and unabashed fan of just about anything with an engine and wheels. If you gave me the DeLorean now yes. and said, Shane, where are we going? The answer would be back to when I was 18 to get rid of that freaking T.E. Cortina because it's the most embarrassing thing because <laughs> as a car lover, we all know you can't help but go, you know. Learn about the classic Holdens in the Jacobson stable, including one that played a starring role in a movie of his, here on Rusty's Garage. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. 
Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Listener.